55. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Please join me once again for a brief moment of prayer before we go into the Word of God. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we begin to walk through this passage from your Word, Father, we pray that you would that you would bless us with the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our guide and our teacher and instructor. We pray that you would enable us to rightly understand your word. And, uh, and Lord, I pray that you would enable me to be accurate with your word and that you would strike from the minds of the listener anything that would be contrary to Scripture, dishonoring to you. Lord, I pray that throughout all of it, Father, as we hear your word, as we read it, as we examine it and handle it, Father, we pray that you would make us more like Christ. We pray that you would use this passage and the rest of this wonderful book to continue to grow our church and to make us even healthier and stronger and more unified and that we would bring you ever greater glory in the world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the, uh, in the wake of the horrific shooting that took place in Uvalde, Texas this past week, once again, people's attention is turning to questions of why, right? Why is this happening? Why does this keep happening? Why is society getting worse? No matter how hard we try, no matter how hard Our government tries, things just seem to be getting worse and worse and worse. How do we turn back the clock? How do we go back to the days when people were nicer to each other, when neighbors were truly neighbors? How do we prevent this from happening again? 
Why is our society so broken? And how did it become so broken? And how do we fix it? Every time these tragic events happen, these are the same questions that people will ask over and over and over again. And once again, all sorts of solutions are being thrown out there. We need to get rid of guns. We just get rid of them. There were no guns in the United States that obviously would solve gun violence. Then there are those who say, no, every citizen needs to have a gun. If there were more guns on campus by law-abiding citizens, if maybe the teachers were armed, maybe fewer students would have died. We need to make schools safer. We need to follow the model of the Israelis, and we need to have armed guards on every corner, and we need to have metal detectors, and we need to have concrete walls all the way around the school. We need to do all that we can, as big as this nation is, and with all of the money that we have, surely we can secure all of our schools. No parents need to just homeschool their kids and pull them out of public schools. If public schools are unsafe, they're a train wreck, they're a disaster, we never should have gone down that road in the first place. We need to be better at dealing with mental illness, is what some people are saying. We need to be better at identifying mental illness, treating mental illness, helping those who struggle with mental illness. That is the problem that we are facing. And on the other side, there are those who say, we need to stop using mental illness as an excuse for all sorts of bad behavior. Everything is chalked up to mental illness. It's all mental illness, and the world just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. We need more federal involvement. We need the government to step up. Local communities can't do it. States can't do it. They don't have the resources. With all of the billions of dollars that we spent on our military, surely the federal government can step in more proactively and solve this problem. But then there are those who say, the federal government has never gotten involved in anything and made it better. Ronald Reagan once famously said, the government is not the solution to our problems. The government is the problem. The government needs to be better at monitoring social media. Law enforcement, state officials, they need more freedom, more latitude to monitor people's Facebook page and Twitter page and Instagram so that we can identify these threats so much sooner. Quit crying about your freedom of privacy and let's focus on protecting children and let the government have the rights or authority that they need to monitor social media 
better. And then there are those who say, no, we just need to get rid of social media. If we're going to ban anything, ban Facebook, ban Twitter, ban social media, because the world was a lot better before there was social media. It seems to be spiraling out of control a whole lot faster since the invention of the Internet, first off, but social media, second of all. We need to elect better politicians. That's what we need. That's the answer. We have too many politicians that are only concerned about being reelected. Americans need to be more proactive in studying these, poli- these politicians and their policies and holding them accountable. We need to be more proactive in holding our government leaders accountable, and we need better politicians. Then there's you who say that we just need to tear the whole system down and start all over. I think the best bumper sticker I ever read during an election year was don't reelect anybody. Every solution that is being offered, for every solution there is a counter solution. For every person that says we need to do A, there is an equal equally large and vocal group of people that say, no, we need to do B. We are like the proverbial dog chasing his tail around and around and around and around, and as a society, we're not getting anywhere. No matter how fast we run, no matter how hard we try, we simply cannot catch our own tail. And all we're doing is going in circles. While the world, while our society is literally unraveling at the seams at an alarming rate. All of this despite the fact that every year in the United States, get this, every year in the United States, 60,000 people graduate with their PhDs. 60,000 every year. We are a nation of intellectuals and super smart people. Every year in the United States alone, not worldwide, in the United States alone, 20 million self-help books are sold. 20 million. 60 1,000 PhDs every year, 20 million self-help books every year, and yet crime continues to get worse. Homelessness continues to get worse. Drug addiction continues to get worse. In June of 1971, President Richard Nixon officially declared the war on drugs. We are losing that war. We are losing that war so badly, the government has finally decided that we're just going to start legalizing certain drugs. Major cities are creating these safe houses where drug addicts can come there and do drugs for free with free, clean syringes and needles that the government will provide for you. Because if you're going to do drugs, we want to make sure you do it safely. We're giving up. Forget the war on drugs. If you can't beat them, you might as well join them or at least help them. Sex trafficking is becoming an enormous problem. Mass shootings, violent crime, senseless crime 
Why? Why is this happening? It's a question that everybody's asking. It's a question people have been asking for decades. That's what Paul's actually going to answer for us in this text as we walk through it. Notice what he says in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is he? Where's the one who can figure all of this out and solve the world's problems? Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? The Greek word can be translated as law, teacher, maybe government official, maybe legislature. There's debate as to whether or not it should be translated as scribe. Is Paul talking about the Jewish scribes, those who are experts in Jewish law? Or, in light of the fact that he's writing to a church that is predominantly comprised of Greeks and Romans, is he talking about politicians, lawyers, legislators, those who are experts in the law? Maybe both. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe or the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Again, the Greek word there can also be philosopher, because that's what philosophers do. They like to debate ideas, right? They hang around in a circle and solve the world's problems and then pat themselves on the back and think, you know, if the world would just listen to us, it'd be a better place. Paul says, where are these people? And then he asks a rhetorical question. And he says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Yes, he has. You see, what Paul is doing is he is continuing with a series of questions to continue working on the pride of the church in Corinth. Because remember, these were a prideful group of people. The church in Corinth, the city in Corinth, was comprised of Greeks and Romans. And both Greeks and Romans thought that they were God's gift to humanity. They were the creme de la creme of the civilized and intelligent world. Everybody else were just barbarians, especially Jews. They were crude, only worshiping one God. So silly and elementary. The Greeks and the Romans knew there was lots of gods. So there's still a lot of pride in Corinth. And that's what caused all of their problems in the church in Corinth. Because they thought they could figure things out on their own. Yes, the church in Corinth has problems. Every church has, in, in, every church has problems. But we are Greeks and Romans. We can figure these things out on our own. It's not much different than American churches. We're Americans. We can solve our own problems. We can just figure it out. And so Paul says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The answer is yes. It's a rhetorical question. God has clearly demonstrated that the wisdom of this world, the wisdom that this world has to offer, all of the knowledge scientific achievements that this world has to offer is nothing more than foolishness. It's just foolishness. 
fact, Paul uses a really strong word here. The word for foolish in the Greek is the Greek word moros. It's where we get our English word moron. Paul says the wisdom of this world is moronic. It's idiotic. It's senseless. It's illogical. It's irrational. It makes no sense. The writer of Ecclesiastes makes a similar assessment of the world's wisdom. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, listen to this. He says, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies is just like the fool. He's talking about the wisdom of the world. Doesn't matter. In the end, they all end up in the same place. The wisdom of this world will get you nowhere. So the author of Ecclesiastes says, it's pointless to pursue wisdom in this world because you're not going to end up any better than the foolish person. But Paul is not one to simply cast aspersions. He will offer three reasons to demonstrate how it is that God has shown the wisdom of this world to be foolish. How God has shown the wisdom of this world to be foolish. And here's reason number one. And I'm getting this from verse 21. God shows the foolishness of this world's wisdom by ordaining they not be able to understand or know God through their own effort, but instead by using the scandal of the cross to save sinners. Let me say that again. God shows the foolishness of this world's wisdom by ordaining that they not be able to know or understand God by their own efforts, by their own reasoning, by their own rationale, but instead by using the scandal, the foolishness of the cross to save sinners. Notice he says in verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Now, here's what's important to take notice of. By inserting that little phrase, in the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Paul wants us to understand that that is no accident. It is no accident that the world, through all of their logic and rationale and reasoning and wisdom and effort and scientific advancement, have failed to come to know God. 
Not an accident. Because God ordained it. God ordained it that way. Paul tells us in Romans 1.22 that although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Although they claimed to be wise. Isn't this what we see out in the world? All of your smartest, most brilliant people Look out at all of the complexity of this world and say this is all a random chance accident. That's how we got here. Unbelievable. You look at all of the solutions that are being offered to the world's problems. And the Christian who looks at it from a biblical worldview says, really, that makes sense to you? Because although they claim to be wise... They became fools because you cannot know God through your own efforts or through your own knowledge. The Jews who had the Old Testament, who had all of the prophets, who foretold the coming of the Messiah, completely missed it when he came. It's one of the saddest statements in the New Testament John chapter 1, verse 1, Scripture says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God, the creator of the universe, comes to his own creation. God, the one who delivered Israel out of bondage and led them through the wilderness and gave them prophets, comes to his own people. And then we read in verses 10 and 11, He was in the world, God was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Can you imagine that? The Creator comes to His own creation And they say to him, who are you? We don't recognize you. Where did you come from? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. No matter how smart the world thinks they are, they cannot come to know God through their own wisdom or through their own effort. Why is that? Because God wills it. God wills it. That's just not my opinion. Luke chapter 10, verse 21, here's a verse that oftentimes is overlooked. Luke chapter 10, verse 21, here the context is Jesus sent out the 72. They go out, they teach, they perform miracles, they come back, they give Jesus a really a raving report that all went well. <clears throat> and Jesus, in rejoicing with them, verse 21 says, In that hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such 
was your gracious will. Did you catch that? You have hidden these things. Unbelievers are doubly blinded to the gospel because we are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, that if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whom the God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Unbelievers are actively being blinded by the devil from seeing the gospel. And as if that weren't enough, that they were already being blinded from seeing the gospel, we're told in Luke chapter 10, according to Jesus, that God hides the gospel from them. He hides the gospel from blind people. They are doubly blind to the gospel and to the things of God. And this has always been the case. This is not new. You go back to the story of the Exodus as Moses performing those 10 miracles and God is preparing to lead them out of Egypt. We are told in Exodus chapter 4 through 14 in those 10 chapters, nine times there is a phrase that keeps popping up. Nine times we read, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Because God is sovereign. And God does what he wills, to whom he wills, when he wills, and he answers to no one. That is the God of creation. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Not only because they are unable to know God because of total depravity, but also because if they could know God by their own wisdom or their own effort, then they could claim glory for themselves. They could claim credit for their own eternal destiny in heaven. And God will share his glory with no one. The world with all of its wisdom and knowledge and advancements. And yet the way to God is through the simple message of the gospel. Forget all of this wisdom, all of these PhDs, all of these books that are being written. What the world needs is the simple message of the gospel that God became a babe and was born in Bethlehem. And he grew and lived a life of perfect obedience to the law, allowed himself to be arrested, scourged, crucified, and then rose from the dead. And if you believe that he did that on your behalf, you can and will know God. And we'll find all of the answers to life's most complicated questions. And the world says, that's ridiculous. Number two, God shows the foolishness of the world's wisdom by using what seems foolish to them to demonstrate the power and the wisdom of God. Verses 22 to 24. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Here, Paul is stating some basic facts about Jews and Greeks. By the way, he's using the words Greeks and uh, Gentiles interchangeably. You see that in verses 23 and 24. Not that these are the same people groups. There is overlap. Uh, Not every Gentile is a Greek, but every Greek is a Gentile. Um, But there are different Greek words. The word for Greek is Helena, and the word for Gentile is ethnos. Uh, But he's using them interchangeably to make sure that we understand, that his readers understand, that what he's talking about here really applies to everybody, both Greeks and Gentiles. But Jews were known for demanding signs if someone claimed to be from God, simply because this is what all of the prophets did in the Old Testament. All of the prophets in the Old Testament performed signs and miracles to show that I have been sent from God. It's what God tells Moses. Moses says to God at the burning bush, who am I? They're not going to believe me. How are they going to believe me that God sent me? God said, I'll give you some signs. Throw your staff down. It becomes a snake. And then he says, pick it back up. He gives them certain signs to perform. The, the Jews were used to this. This is how you identify whether this is truth or not, whether this actually comes from God. On, so on numerous occasions, they asked Jesus for a sign. Remember in John chapter 2, after he cleanses out the temple, runs everybody out, the first thing they say to him is, what sign do you give to show that you have the authority to do this? Give us a sign. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The greatest of his signs. In fact, he will refer to that on several occasions. In Matthew chapter 12 as well, scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they say, give us a sign to show that you are from God and that you claim to be who you are. And Jesus said, an evil and Perverse generation seeks a sign, but yet no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. This is Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be three days in the earth. He says the same thing in Matthew chapter 16. They come to him and they say, give us a sign. Jesus looks at them and nods his head and says, you know, you know how to tell the signs of the heavens. You know that when the uh, sky is Red at night, it's going to be good weather the next day. When it's red in the morning, there's going to be foul weather approaching. And yet, you cannot read the signs of the Son of Man who is standing right here. And then he says, no signs will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. Jews, they look for signs. The Greeks, of course, seek wisdom, logic, persuasive arguments, When Paul speaks at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, they don't ask him for signs. Rather, in Acts chapter 17, verses 19 to 20, this is what they say to Paul. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. They're interested in listening. They don't want miracles. Persuade us with your argument and with your oratory skills, and we will listen to what you have to say. 
But instead, Paul says in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. We preach neither signs and wonders and miracles, nor do we preach the wisdom that Greeks are seeking, but rather we preach Christ crucified. A simple message, which Greeks would laugh at because it's so simple. It's laughable in its simplicity. But also, the Jews would scoff at because it was a scandal. The idea that the Messiah would be crucified by Gentiles, by the Romans of all people who are occupying the land of Israel, God would never allow such a thing. They simply could not fathom a crucified Messiah. But to those who are called, Paul says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That is, to those sovereignly called by God. To those God has sovereignly opened their eyes to the glory of Christ and to understand and embrace the gospel, to them Christ is both the wisdom and the power of God. Romans 8.30 says, For those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. So who are those that will be called, according to Paul in Romans 8.30? Those whom God predestined, he calls. Now, I recognize that there is a general gospel calling. There is a general invitation that goes out to the entire world. Jesus talks about that in the parable of the, the wedding banquet in Matthew chapter 22. But at the end of that parable, he says something, a very short sentence that is really that really packs a punch. At the end of that parable in Matthew 22, verse 14, Jesus says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Yes, the gospel calling goes out to the world. It is an invitation to the world. But at the end of the day, according to Romans 8.30, those whom he predestines, he will sovereignly and salvifically call to be his own. And to those, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. Christ is the power of God because Christ is God. Christ is the word of God. You go back to Genesis chapter 1, and how does God create everything? He simply speaks it into existence. He wills that which he desires to be. The word of God is his power. And then we're told in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. And then verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
in Christ, we see the embodiment of the power of the omnipotent God in one human being. Christ is the wisdom of God because he is God. And in the person of Christ, God's plan of redemptive history culminates in the one person and work of Jesus Christ. Everything that God is doing in all of redemptive history, all of his plans, everything that he is moving world history toward ultimately finds its fulfillment in one person, Jesus Christ. However, the gospel, Christ crucified, is also the power and the wisdom of God in that it is the only true solution to the world's problem. Because the gospel is what brings people together into one body from every race, every economic class, every social and cultural background. Only the gospel can do that. Thus, a church, a church that fully and completely understands and embraces and lives out the gospel of Jesus Christ, a church that is gospel-saturated, that is gospel-focused, that is gospel-driven, is the kind of church where people from the outside should walk into that church and be astounded and say, how, how does this happen? How can this be? How is it that you have a group of people from various races, both genders, various economic backgrounds, various social backgrounds, various cultural backgrounds, and they all come together and they not only get along together, but they actually love each other and they care for one another. And they extend grace and mercy and patience toward one another. And they are unified in mind and heart. How is that possible? Because that's what the world is looking for. That's what the world needs. The answer is the gospel. The gospel is the only truth that can truly unify people and solve the world's problem. However, churches which embrace the gospel only with their lips, but not with their heart or with their actions, will seek to borrow from the world's wisdom. Ideas of tolerance. Ideas of overlooking sin. Let's just get along. And what you find is that these liberal churches are filled with problems. And they are splitting, and they are dividing, and they are dying. Because the world is realizing, you don't have the answer. The gospel of Jesus Christ enables a church not just to blur the lines. Listen, the gospel enables a church not just to blur the lines between race and economic and social backgrounds, 
the gospel truly embraced and lived out enables the church to erase those lines. Because we only see one group of people, the body of Christ. We see people made in the image of God whom Christ died and redeemed and bled for. And that no one is any better than anyone else. But you see, the world says that that is utter nonsense. It's ridiculous. Because all the problems that we are dealing with out there in the world are complex. They are complicated. They require complex and complicated solutions. And we've got all of the best minds in the world working on all of these problems, solving all of the crime, solving all of the world's ills. And we hope that someday we'll figure it out when all they need is the gospel. Number three, God shows the foolishness of the world's wisdom by demonstrating that the most basic elementary truths regarding God are far superior to the highest knowledge and achievements of man. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Why does he say the foolishness and the weakness of God? I mean, is, is there any aspect of God that is foolish? Is there any aspect of God that is weak or weaker than another aspect of God? No. But Paul is trying to communicate something with human language. Paul is simply saying that the most basic elemental truth regarding God, the things that believers would say, you know, this is theology 101, is far superior to all of the wisdom and the knowledge that the world has to offer. They simply cannot wrap their minds around the basic truth that God became human. That doesn't even make sense. What, how is that even possible? Because with all of their PhDs out there and their experts and their problem solvings, their problem solvers in the wake of last week's shooting. They are all still standing around looking at each other and scratching their heads and saying, we've got to figure this out somehow. What are we doing wrong? Because they are simply missing the most critical piece of the puzzle, Christ crucified. Any problem that you, any solution that you put forward that is missing the gospel will only make things worse. Not just out there, my friends, in your own home, in your marriage, in your families, in your community, in your workplace, and certainly within the church. Any solution that is not springing forth from a gospel understanding of what Christ has done will simply make things worse. The world laughs at this oversimplistic approach. But sadly, one reason they laugh is because far too many churches are just as much a mess on the inside as the world is on the outside because they are borrowing from the world. The church does not need the world's solutions. 
We don't need their theories. We don't need their PhDs. We don't need their self-help books. This is all we need. Unity, peace, and harmony within the church comes from understanding, embracing, and living out the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives and within the church. I'll say that again. Unity, peace, and harmony within the church comes from fully understanding and embracing and living out the gospel in our lives and within the church. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray Lord, I have prayed this for years, that our church would be just that kind of church. That the outside world would come into our midst and be astounded and say, how can this be? How is this possible? How have you found the solution that the world is searching for so that we can point our finger to Christ and to the cross of Christ and say, there is the answer. Christ and him crucified. We pray that you would make us just such a church. And we pray this in Christ's name.